Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting that we celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, would you feed us again this morning? We only need bread for this day and this week. And so we come asking that by your spirit, you'd bring us nourishment again, reminding us again of the truth that we live in. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2002, a man went and bought a lotto ticket and he won what was then the largest winnings ever. It was $315 million. Dollars. Uh, Jack Whitaker uh, uh, was famous for this. Um, the New York Times writes that his life, in the midst of winning all this lottery uh, money, uh, it became rife with setbacks and tragedy. After that, he won this record-setting amount. Um, he ended up uh, deciding to take it all in one lump sum. Payout. You wonder why people do that, but he decided I'll take take it. And so after taxes, it only comes down to ah, just a mere hundred and thirteen point four million dollars. But who's counting? You know. And so he he begins to 
head off on a, on a private jet to New York where he ends up with, uh, you know, the morning talk shows and, and very soon uh, all the problems come because he very quickly fell victim to scandals and lawsuits and personal setbacks as he himself began to spend it all. Uh, eventually, he found himself with uh, drinking issues and gambling issues. His home was burglarized. His car, uh, the New York Times write, uh, writes, was um, broken into while he was at a strip club. Thieves broke into his Lincoln Navigator and stole a briefcase uh, with funds and cashier's checks over a half a million dollars. <coughs> he very quickly lost everything. Friends, if you this morning were given um, $315 million, if you were given $113.4 million, what would you spend it on? (laughs) What would you value? I mean, I thought about this. I was thinking, what do I value that I would want to put that money into? Where are the places where I would maybe even say, I'm willing to spend double or triple whatever it's worth because I have the funds. I'm willing to just lavishly spend the the funds on this person, on this thing, on this item, on this trip, whatever it is. Where is it and what is it that you would value? This morning, we're going to take a look at not just one man in today's passage, but we're going to actually be looking at two men who spend lavishly. This passage will help us peer into the very heart of God this morning as we see what it is that God himself would spend recklessly for. To see what it is that he values. What is he willing to give it all up for? Friends, this is a parable which compares the lostness of two people. It's not just the son. It's the lostness of both, both the rebellious and the religious. It's the lostness of both the licentiousness And the legalist, it's the lostness that some people find themselves in in rebellious sin. What we'll also see in this parable is there can be a lostness in self-righteousness. This morning, we're primarily going to be coming at this from one angle as we consider the first half. Um, In two weeks' time, as I mentioned, we'll consider the elder brother. But this morning, we are considering the younger brother, the one who left in rebellion uh, against the father. Now, this younger brother who's infamously called the prodigal son, we are familiar with this, it's the title that you'll find in many of our Bibles is is the the parable of the prodigal son. Um, But this really misses the point. Before we launch into this, you need to understand this misses the the idea of this. The, The very first line of this parable is, there was a man who had two sons. Um, The heart of this parable really doesn't focus on the rebellious son as much as it does to the loving response of the father Um, and to the resistant elder brother, which we will consider later. That's more where the emphasis lies. But further, as we delve into this, this idea of prodigal, it's interesting, that word prodigal does not actually show up in this passage. Um, It's something that's taken on a connotation in our culture. Somebody says, oh, I had a a child that was a prodigal child, or I I knew of this prodigal, or I was the prodigal. What we typically mean by that, the sense is that somebody has lived in in reckless, wild living for a time, and then returned back to more of a conservative form of, of normal, what we might consider normal living. But that's not what the word prodigal means. Prodigal means that we have spent it all. Uh, the prodigal means to have 
done what Jack Whitaker did when he got his lotto winnings, when he took the hundreds of millions and just blew it. That's what prodigal means. And we all know people like that who will spend it all. You and I know people like that. I know people, if you give them a dollar, it's gone today. I know people that if they had $5 in a coffee can buried in the backyard, they will go dig it up in the middle of the night. You know people that if they have $50,000 in in the the account, it will be gone this year. Some people are just like that. Um, But the root meaning of this is that sort of spending. And it's important as we consider not only the younger son, but as we look even to how the father spends and how the elder brother responds to all this. So a better title for this parable might be the parable of the forgiving father. Or the parable of a father's response to his two lost sons. And it's within that framework we will see in the confines of the first half of this parable this morning that at great cost to himself, God welcomes and receives lost sinners with rejoicing, with celebration. At great cost to himself, God welcomes and receives lost sinners with celebration. So, let us start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. And when we read the very first two verses, we catch that the son is essentially wishing that the father is dead. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now, in general, this story, I think this parable could be understood in just about any, any culture can get the general flow of this, but um, we need to step foot into first century for a moment so we can understand how inheritance would have worked in first century. In first century Israel, um, inheritance typically worked that the property, the estate would have been divided up. And in this case, with two sons, the elder son would have received a double portion. So the property could be divided in three, and then the elder son would receive a double share, while the younger son would receive a third. And so here, this son, he's not merely asking the father, would you please partition off part of the property that I will begin to work and we'll start calling it my own and sort of working up to the time when you may pass. What he's essentially saying is, father, would you... Would you divide up this property and we'll sell it off so I can take the funds and go spend them as though you were already dead? Um, And what this meant for the family, it was costly. Because imagine your family estate, your farm, you're relying on this produce, and now you, you reduced it so that by one third, you're going to have one third less crops this coming year, one less third funds in, 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 in a first century agricultural society. This could mean the difference between boom or bust. So it was dangerous to do something like this. Um, here, essentially, the younger son is saying, not just a simple request, he's saying, I want you, Father, to do what we would do if you were no longer around. I want to get mine so I can go party with wealth. The audacity of the son to look the father in the eyes and essentially say, let's just pretend you're not here anymore because I don't want to be with you. I just want the funds. Can you feel the weight of that? 
This father at this point would have had every right to respond totally differently than he does. He would have had every right to say, you know what? You're free to leave. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, but you're not leaving with anything. Don't think that that's how this is going to happen. The father would have had every right to respond that way. Um, He would have had every right to say something like this to the son. Hey, you know what? Son, this is going to bring great shame on us. Everybody in this small community, they're going to know what happened. They're going to know how what you've done, the shame that you put on our family. They're going to know that you took all this money. They'll know what kind of lifestyle you're off living with. And, and you're going to bring great shame and harm on yourself and on us. Don't do this. This is a travesty. But here this father, knowing that this path, he knows that this path here is going to be the more difficult and the more longer path. He allows this to happen, just like our Heavenly Father, sometimes knowing that we need to go to the very end of ourselves and find it absolutely miserable and empty before we will return back to really understand God and His grace. And so the Father allows this request to follow through. Much like our Heavenly Father here uh, allows us to come to the misery of our sin, this is exactly what happens with the Son. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, The younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. You see how quickly he's abandoned the family. He's got the funds. The property has been sold off. He's got the wealth. He begins to head off for a far off country, quote unquote. The implication is the son's taken on a new identity. He's got new friends. He's got a new life. He's got it all. He's got an ability to provide for himself tremendously. And it says here in our ESV translation that he squandered his property property in reckless living. The NIV puts it that he squandered his wealth in wild living. This is exactly what might happen if you just pretend that you you gave a foolish uh, college student who's just entering college and you just said, eh, here's, here's $20,000 in an empty house. You just do whatever you want. You, you can picture the sort of things that are going to happen there. It, it's, it's, it becomes a mess. And the elder brother later on, he adds to our understanding of just how foolish this younger son gets because he says, this son of yours has devoured your property, or in other words, he's devoured the wealth of your property with prostitutes. And so here, here it is, it's, it's been said that the younger son, this younger son, he, he gathered it all, but he lost it in a hurry. That he goes from feast to famine in just a single verse. And so then in verses 14 and 15, we see the results of this. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went out and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. A few notable things here. First is that this son, he's, um, he's found himself away from home and he's finally burnt up all of his money and he's hungry now. But the fact that the Jesus includes in this parable, this is on purpose. He says he's off feeding the pigs. Now, Jews don't associate with pigs, right? And so the fact that at this point, the son, he's not just associated with pigs, He's a servant. He's under the pigs. He's serving the pigs. It's a picture of just how far sin 
takes us. It's unclean, it's uncleanliness, and it is just how low he goes. So that, you know, like today we might say somebody went off to, to Vegas and they took all their money and they blew it all on gambling and next thing you know, they're in the gutter and they're holding a cardboard sign and they have a needle in their arm. When we say that sort of a story, we just know how, we know how low that they've really gone. And you see this destitution. That is the picture here. Some of us here, we've, we've been in a far off country before. We know the, the, the fleeting pleasures that very quickly lead to destruction. We know that for a moment it might feel right. It might feel all right. And then there comes this misery, this point where um, our sin has led us to a bothersome place. We won't be left alone. So we have pictured here the lostness of the sinner, pictured in a couple short verses. They are off away from home where he belongs. He's finding that sin is sour when lived in, and now he's finding that they have come to misery. His money's dried up. The people who claim to be his friends, not really his friends. At this point, they're nowhere to be found. He's looking for food, and you would assume that all these people that he partied it up with would have gladly said, here's a burrito, here's a slice of pizza, something. But what we find is the text says no one gave him anything. So, begins the rehearsal. He begins to have a private conversation that we're led in onto where he's talking to himself. So he says to himself these particular things. Now, before we get to the rehearsal, you and I were told this story that leopards do not change their spots, that it is nigh impossible for people to turn from the way that they used to live to turn to God. And yet, friends, you know this, for every two or three or four people that you can point out where you can say, you know what, see, that for the last 20 years, for the last 40, 50 years, they've been the exact same person. I can show you one person in this room who used to live a certain way, but because of the grace of God has turned and changed. I can point to you and talk about your stories and my stories showing us that indeed the leopard can change its spots. God can do a miracle in turning us from the emptiness of sin and the misery and the, the, the pointlessness of living in this. And so here we have this picture of the turn. We see in this son, even though this son's repentance may not be with the fullest and most sincere heart, and it is indeed a, a turn here. The biblical scholar um, David Wells, in his book on conversion, he highlights that both the Old Testament and the New Testament conversions entail this concept of turning. So he writes this, conversion means turning or returning to God. Those within the Old Testament context needed a fresh understanding of what it meant to be a man or woman in covenant. That is this relationship with God. And those outside the covenant today, just as in biblical times, need to discover the filial relationship with God, meaning that we are sons and daughters of the living God. This is what humanity was created for, a relationship that was destroyed by sin, but that has been reestablished in the new covenant. Surely, it is just the beginning, but we see the turn here with the younger son who's come to his senses. Look at verse 17 through 19, where we read, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? <laughs> but I perish here with hunger. I will arise. I'm going to go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There's an echo here that we see of Hosea 
chapter 2, verse 7, where we see that Hosea's wife, Gomer, who went and prostituted off her, her, her marriage, and then she's sleeping around. She comes back and she says, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then as it is now. Very similarly here, he comes to his senses and sees that. And as he rehearses, something's changed. It's very subtle here, but something has changed because at the beginning, when he comes to his father, he says, father, but then here, as he's rehearsing his speech to himself, he says, I will go to my father. So two times we read, I will go to my father. So he's acknowledging he does have a father and this will stand in contrast to what we'll read in a couple weeks where we see the elder brother. When, when the father addresses him there, the elder brother, he turns to his dad, his father, and he doesn't even call him that. The one who's been working hard alongside the dad, he turns to the, the father and he says, look, look, this son of yours. He doesn't even acknowledge his brother as his own brother. He says, look, you, you acknowledge this son of yours. And so he, the, the elder brother, as we'll highlight, is breaking this family in his language. While this son, here in his rebelliousness, as he begins the turn, he's beginning to acknowledge, I need my family. I need my father. And now we must not miss the the mode in which this younger son wants to repent. How true it is of you and I and this son that the default mode of our hearts is religion. The place that you and I, we want to always go back to is religion. It's the default mode of us. When he rehearses what he's going to do as he goes back to the father, what does he rehearse? He's rehearsing, here's what I will do to make this right. He's talking about in terms of what he's going to do to earn back his stead as a servant to try and maybe earn back some of the father's love. So what he is doing in this moment, he rehearses law. He says, I will do right. And then my father will at least owe me a place on the farm like a servant to kind of work hard and earn my keep. See, he knows the father to be gracious enough to take him back. While many fathers would have wished their sons, um, would never return in this state. Many fathers would have said, look, when you leave, don't boomerang. Don't boomerang on me and try to come back. When you're gone like this, you're gone. But the son knows my father will take me back. And as he's thinking of this, he's thinking of it in terms of law and religion. But the son does see that his father will extend some level of grace to him. So he comes back with this repentant heart. And the reality is great. As he returns with law in his heart, he's given grace. This is the reality. This reveals to us the very heart of God. This scene bristles with beauty and with grace and with unexpected turns here. Tim Keller in his excellent book, I highly commend to you, The Prodigal God. I think there's a copy out there in the, in the library. Um, he says, what should have happened here in this moment as the son decides to come back to the father The father should have sort of done this, you know, one of these, cross your arms and you sort of tap your toe and you say, I see this son of mine coming back. This better be good. This better be good. He better have, he better be truly, none of this fake repentance stuff. He better really be sorry. I better recognize in him that he's really regretted what he's done. He better be ready to work this off. But that's not the heart of this father. This is the amazing twist here. Rather than expecting him to come back groveling, the father's response right here in this moment reveals to us the heart of God, where the younger son came back with a plan for law and hard work. 
which actually meant he was going to remain outside the family, the father's unplanned, he didn't plan this out, the father's unplanned knee-jerk reaction in this moment is incredible. It's tremendous grace and generosity, not just to restore him to sonship, but to celebrate. Do you see how this unfolds? The father doesn't wait for the son to arrive. He sees the son coming from way off and he explodes with emotion. The, The text reads, compassion. See this in verse 20. As he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still, see that, a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and he embraced and kissed him. There it is. The father then runs out to greet him, further showing that his heart was melting for his son. Fathers in this culture, friends, they don't run. Fathers in this time and age here, they, they're, they're like kings. They present themselves as like the estate owners. So who runs? Kids run. The kids would be off playing games in the field. But fathers don't ever run. Fathers saunter. With great wisdom, they stride and they sort of look out from a distance. But not this father. This father breaks all of the cultural expectations as he hikes up his robe and he runs out to his sinful son to greet him and embrace him with kissing and with hugs. Do you see the scene? And then we see the son, he's, he's ready to give the full spiel. He's rehearsed it. He says, I know my lines. I've got these down. I'm going to tell the father this. And, and then we read, he's, he's doing this. He begins to say, now, father, I've sinned. And yes, he has against heaven, against you. And he says, uh, you know, why don't you take me back just as, you know, a hired servant? And, and then the text reads, as he embraced him and kissed him, we see this in verse 22. The father ignores him. The father kind of, shh, none of that, none of that. Listen, verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and the the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Friends, do you recognize the father in this story? Do you see your heavenly father in this story? Do you think of him when you see this? Do you see that he is the one who ran out to greet us in our great sin? Do you hear these words and let them settle on your heart this morning? This is the heart of God for you. All you who say, I am a sinner who needs Jesus. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and her. And put the ring on their hands and the shoes on their feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us all eat and celebrate. Why? Verse 24, for this son was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, but is found. And they began to celebrate. There's no foot tapping here. There's no arms crossed here at this moment, but there's the joy when a sinful person turns from their lifestyle of sin to the living God. Friends, this is set, this parable that we're in, the prodigal son, the two lost sons, it's set in a form of three. If we rewind to the parable that comes right before this, at verse 8 of chapter 15, we find the parable of the lost coin. 
Look at what Jesus says here where he talks about this lost coin. He says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house seeking diligently until she finds it? And then when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels, angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here the prodigal son is just like that coin, was lost, but now is found, was dead, but is alive. And there's a party and there's rejoicing when one comes to believe and trust in Jesus. When one comes to their senses and turns from their sin to God. It is like the person who went truly from being dead to being alive. This is why the scripture, this is why Christians, we call this being born again. We use that term because It is like truly coming to life, a real coming to life. Could, how could the son at this point not love the father in return? The one who is sacrificed for him. Well, he friends, he paid it a lot when he sent him off. And now he's again paying a lot as he brings him back. And he's not being reestablished as a doormat, but as a son. How could he not want to work with joy alongside the father at this point? Sure, not the main point of this parable, but at least a side one that the son could now be uh, called by by the father a true son and and in love because he's loved. And this reminds us of 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 19, where we we read that uh, we love because he first loved us. And and later uh, in 1 John chapter 5, at verse uh, one, it, it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's that being born again. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And friends, I hope this settles on you. His commandments are not burdensome, it says. Um, church, don't believe the lie that says, to, to live for Jesus, to, to love Jesus is a drag. If you've tried following Jesus and you've found that it is not a joy, I don't know that you're following the same Jesus I'm following. And, and so if that's you this morning, would you talk to me? Would you talk to one of the elders? We want you to follow the Jesus that gives us this great joy. This is a reason why I wake up with a song in my heart because of this Christ. And it's pictured here in the son who receives the ring, who receives the robe, who receives these shoes, um, who has this incredible feast. Do you think that the same son who showed up going, that's it, I'm going to be a slave from now on. And when he was lavished with this kind of love, do you think that he woke up the next day and thought, boy, this is awful. I don't know what I've done. Friends, he went out and he whistled as he worked in the field alongside his father. Don't you know that? That he had been restored. He's no longer with the pigs. He's with his family where he belongs. And he knows what it costs to send him out. How well aware he is of the cost emotionally, the cost that was upon him socially, the cost that was upon the father financially to bring him back in. Consider how great the cost. The more you pay for something, the more you love it. The more you sacrifice for something, the more that you love it. For the father to pay so extravagantly when selling off the property for the son, it was costly. It was a third of the property, a third of the future produce. Then for the father to give him shoes, sure, but the best robe and the ring, 
It's all a brilliant picture of sacrificial love. And if that wasn't enough, barbecued ribs are on the menu. This is a feast like no other. You, you know weddings these days. I don't know how many of you have been hearing about some of the pricing. Or you'll see these articles online where you, where you realize some of these folks are paying a year's wage for their wedding. And a big part of the portion of the cost of this whole wedding is the food. Some people paying like $25,000 for this banquet. That, that's sort of the idea here in the first century. Meat wasn't on the menu every day. You'd be lucky to have chicken here and there and occasionally a goat. And, and when it was really time to celebrate, you, you slaughter the fattened calf. I mean, this was pulling out all the stops. And, and so here it is. This father spends lavishly to restore the son to sonship. At great cost, the father welcomes the son home. And friends, what is true for this son is true for you Christians who trust in Jesus Christ. At great cost to himself, God welcomes and receives lost sinners with celebration. God the Father pays the extravagant price of his son to save us. See, some have a view that pictures our salvation as if God was sort of interrupted. He was in the middle of making dinner and somebody knocks on the door and he sort of kicks the screen on open and says, come on in. No, friends, that's not the picture. The picture is that we were off dying in the wilderness and God the Father sent his son on the rescue mission whom he died to save us. And, and though Jesus told this parable in the middle of his earthly ministry, those who have eyes to see it and ears to hear it would later recognize this Jesus was the payment to welcome you and I home. That Jesus at great cost, he paid it all so that your debts due to sin would be paid. So he extravagantly paid every last drop of his blood to restore us into a relationship where you and I have a promised party and celebration that we are going to enter into. It's a great feast that will be this parable story coming to life that you and I are going to be together at. Church, we are only halfway through this parable and the picture is so clear for us that God loves sinners who found the world empty and meaningless and left them hungry and he loves it when they return to him. And when they do, it is like going from being dead to being alive. We see this again in verse 24. I just want to bring this to mind again where he says, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is so true that it's pictured in Jesus's last moments of his life. That while Jesus is dying on the cross, we find a rebellious prodigal son who is dying alongside him and in faith goes from unbelief to trusting in Christ. Luke, the same book that we're in, he closes with this picture. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals, so there was three, there was Jesus and the two criminals. And one of the criminals who hanged railed him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what are Jesus's words? You know them. Truly, I say to you, today you will be in paradise with me. Let us join the heart of the father who is willing to lavishly spend it like this with the blood of his son 
Let us join him in this as we consider our calling to proclaim the gospel that we too would join the heart of our heavenly father and spend it. I hope that you're willing friends to spend your time, spend your energy, maybe if need be spend your funds so that you would see lost brothers come and return to hope in Christ. My prayer for our church this year is that we would see many turnings that many people who've never followed Jesus before would turn to him. And many people who have walked away from him saying, well, I thought I knew Jesus, but I had him wrong, would see and return to loving Christ and living for him. And further, this parable speaks to me, reminding me. Church, I think many of you know this in my personal story. I have a younger brother who is a prodigal son, who is off, not in the good sense. He's off spending it all in wild living. And I can begin to believe sinfully in my heart and say, why try praying anymore? Why bother? He's lost. He's never going to return. And sort of over the years, give up on praying for my brother and some of your family members and your sons and your daughters who are in this state. And friends, we should pray all the more knowing that if this son could come to his senses, that my brother and your family members, God could do a work in their hearts and lives, that they would turn and see the misery of their sin, that they would want to return to the living God. Well, as I close, I want to briefly back out this morning. I want to just look up at two more verses here in chapter 15. If you would read with me 15 verses 1 and 2 here. Says now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Remember, I told you that this parable of the of the prodigal son, the the, the rebellious son and the elder son, this is set in the form of three parables. So you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then it concludes with the with the lost um, son. But the truth is, the audience that received these three parables were two groups of people. They were the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. And so, just as last week, and if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And here, we have essentially this being lived out before us. The Pharisees are there. The tax collectors and sinners are there. And Jesus is telling this parable... So that the tax collectors and sinners, as they hear the story of the prodigal son, as they hear the son going off and living in rebellion, they're going, that's me. And as the Pharisees are sitting there with their arms crossed, hearing about the elder brother, which we will consider next, they cross their arms and they go, he's talking about us. And so as we conclude on this note, I just ask you to see the radical grace that the father is going to extend, has extended to the younger son. And as we pause, we'll wait and see the radical grace that the father wants for the elder brother as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we have in our community uh, prodigals. We have those who have left uh, church and left you their father. Uh, We pray that lost sheep, that the lost coins and the lost sons would be found Lord, we think of the passage, it says your arm is not too short to save. And so we pray that you would save some, that you would turn them to you, that you would find them, that you would run out in the fields to greet them while they are a long way off. 
Father, please do this so that your name would be magnified, so that your name would be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.